0: We're talking about spiritual power, reverence versus disrespect, or if you prefer, honoring and dishonoring. And obviously, the first thing that came to mind when I looked at that was the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as in heaven. I thought, that's got all the elements for the worship and respect of God and honouring God. It's got he's worthy, he's got to be worshipped in truth, it's got to be his will that prevails, and the fear of the Lord, that locks it all in. So those are the elements that we need if we are going to worship and honour God properly. Let's have a look at Scripture of the prodigal son. It's in Luke ten, uh rather. And he rose and he came to his father, and when he was yet a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and embraced and kissed him. You know that scripture, verse twenty is the only scripture in the Bible where you see God running. God never runs anywhere. But when the prodigal son who's gone away into the world, he's dissipated his inheritance, he's done everything and defied his father and just had a great time, but he's come to his senses and he's finally said to himself, I've had it with this. It's just not the thing I'm looking for. It's the wrong direction in my life. I'm going back to my father. And he turns with all of his heart back to God. And the instant he makes that decision in his heart, I'm going back to God. God runs towards him. It's a beautiful thought. Ten, Luke 10, 29, you've got the opposite. You've got dishonoring God. And one of the things I've noticed when this, looking at this subject, it's really int- easy to dishonor God and not even realize that you're doing it. Because remember, it's got to be honored and worthy in truth and also in the will of God. If those elements are missing, you're going to end up dishonoring God. And I've picked this photograph of a Jewish man, and he's looking at you Gentiles. (laughs) And one of the things is he's, he's wanting to justify himself to Jesus, and he does it by saying, who's my neighbor? Now, the thing is with the Jews, God's told them, just as he's told us, to love their neighbor. But what the Jews do with that is they isolate the neighbor part, and they ask the question, well, who's my neighbor? And then, because they're Pharisees, they build a law around God's law. And they say, well, your neighbor is, and they go and they categorize a neighbor, what you can do and what you can't do. To give you an example, the Jews said, okay, who's my neighbor? Definitely not the Gentiles. So we can forget being a good neighbor to them. Definitely not the Samaritans. So we'll forget being a good neighbor to them. That just leaves the Jews. And they've got laws like uh, the Jew brings his uh, ass into the city and it's loaded with produce for the market. Now, they'll check the owner ownership of the ass. And if it's a Jew that owns it, you can help him to unload it. But if it's a Gentile that owns it, you don't help them. If a Jew is in danger, you help your brother in danger. But if he's a Gentile, you don't help the Gentiles if they're in danger. In fact, it's perfectly all right to send them into danger. Now, this lawyer is trying to trap Jesus with all these little laws that they've got by asking Jesus, who is my neighbor? And it's interesting how Jesus handles it. He jams him in with a little story. And he tells him about the good Samaritan. And he said, look, this man is lying injured on the road. A priest goes by, they just ignore him. And then a Levite goes by, and he just ignores him. And then a Samaritan goes by, and the Samaritan, he tends to him, takes him to hospital, pays all his bills, and supports him until he's healed. Then he says to the lawyer, Who was the good neighbor? The lawyer had nowhere to go. He had to say the Samaritan. You see, what was the issue that Jesus is trying to get through to this man? He's asking the wrong question. Have you ever asked yourself that? Who's my neighbor? You're asking the wrong question. He was upside down when he's thinking. And Jesus had to bring him up, downside up. And what he's done with him is said, look, he didn't say it in so many words, but the subtext is the question isn't who's my neighbor. The question is who am I a good neighbor to? And that's got to be our attitude. And it doesn't matter. Okay, it's a Muslim. I don't like the Muslims. Well, you'd be a good neighbor if they're indeed. It doesn't matter. We don't start categorizing people. We just do what Jesus did and reach out to everyone, even his enemies. Let's look at the next one. John 3 and verse 2. This is a good example of a man who's... He's dishonored God all his life and doesn't realize it. He's a man called Nicodemus. Nicodemus... He's coming to see Jesus at night because he's the chief theologian for the Sanhedrin. The top man. If you've got a question of law, you saw Nicodemus. And yet here's Nicodemus. He's been watching and listening to Jesus. And he realizes you have to be from God because no one can perform these signs unless God was with them. And he wants to get the power. So he just thinks, well, Jesus, can you give me that power and off I'll go. But Nicodemus, is he's, he's, a, he's the man of the law, not the man of the spirit of the law. How does Jesus get through to this guy? And he's really clever again how he does it. He gives him a theological lesson on being born again of the spirit. And it would all have been over his head. He wouldn't have understood any of it. But he just planted one seed that Nicodemus could get a hold of. Not then. He didn't understand. But he said to Nicodemus, look, Nicodemus. Just as Moses lifted up the snake on a pole in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. That was it. And Nicodemus would have walked out of there none the wiser. What on earth was going on? But the seed had been planted. And let's have a look at that seed. Because this man, without even realizing it, he's dishonoring God because he's not teaching in truth. I could do the same if I get up here. I can dishonor God by giving you something that's not the truth. Numbers 21, you've got the story. Sorry, Numbers uh, John 3.14. Uh, It's Moses lifting up the serpent in the wilderness. Even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. There's a problem here with human understanding and God's understanding of love. We get this emphasis on the love of God and we must tell people about the love of God. Well, that's true to an extent because this snake on the pole how did it get there? Israel was defying God. It was whinging, they were complaining. They were going about, oh, we're criticizing Moses, and they don't like this, and they don't like the food, and they don't like that. And God was getting fed up with them. So how does God deal with them, and how does he bring about understanding? What he does is he sends snakes into their midst, and they're poison snakes. And they are poisoning thousands of Jews. They're going down like ninepins. Men, women, babies, they're all dying. And they ask God, oh, we're sorry, we won't do it anymore. Please forgive us. Did God take away the snakes? He didn't. Now, if you're talking about God's love, how are you going to justify God leaving those poison snakes after they've said, we're sorry, please forgive us. Because he did. You see, the trouble with looking at God's love is you look at it in the wrong way. You're looking at it from human perspective. How does a human perspective? We just want to love them like a father, like the prodigal son is loved. They're people who have turned back to God and been accepted by him. The father's love is, is the love that God shifts towards them. But these people in the desert, they don't turn back to God. They don't say anything to God as far as I'm turning back with all of my heart. And yet God poisons them and poisons them. What is he doing? He's actually giving them his love. But it's, to look at it, that love, you have to see it as God sees it in the sinner's death. That's where it's located. God sees the sinner's death. And he sees he's got to do something about this. So what he does, in his mercy, he reaches out to them by giving them a way out. And he says, you'll look at the cross, uh, sorry, well, you look at the pole, and when you see that snake, you'll be healed. Now, the choice was still with them. They could choose to look, or they could choose to carry on doing it. But when they looked, they were healed. And this is just a typology for them. He's building slowly towards the cross, but he hasn't got there yet. The Lord sent the fiery serpents. They bit the people and they died. One of the things about this is God extended mercy. Was it a loving God? Yes, but not in the way you think when you put human emotion to it. It's got to be loving seeing their death and extending his mercy to them as a result of seeing that death. That was God's love. Take, for example, when Jesus uh, gave them of the uh, two people in the synagogue. And one of them stands up and says, as far as he gets up and says, I thank you, Lord. I'm not like these sinners. I keep your whole law. And another man stands up and he's a tax collector. Nay, were the lowest of the low in the hierarchy of this society. And this tax collector says, "God have mercy on me, a sinner." Who did God justify? The one that pled for mercy. <clears throat> and this is the sense in which Israel is turning to God with the snake; they're looking to God for mercy. And God extends mercy to them. (coughs) But Psalm 7 and verse 11, you'll find that God judges the righteous and he's angry with the wicked every day. Psalm 90 says the same thing. Every day when a wicked person wakes up, God is angry with them. So you've got to be careful when you're throwing things around like God loves you. Because Jesus warned, he said, look don't throw pearls before swine. And I've tried this out in the street. I thought, I'll just see if this works. I tried a few and said, look, God loves you. Straight away they come back at me with. If God loves me, why do the little babies die? Why all the wars? Why all the fighting? Why this? Why that? Because I've thrown a pearl before swine and they're going to turn and rend me. You can't Do that because they're not going to understand. They're not going to see God's love in terms of their death. Only God does that. And we are Christians. We need to do that. What's going to motivate us to reach out to the lost? It's seeing their death if we don't. That's the love of God bringing his mercy into their lives. Numbers 22, I picked this, uh, can you see it? Yeah, I thought it was quite a good example of uh, going your own way and doing your own thing. And this is the constant problem God's got with Israel. Trying to get them to do the right thing, but they're always wanting to go their own way. And they've got this man called Balaam. And he rises up in the morning, saddles his ass, and he's going to the princes of Moab. To understand that situation, Israel's been brought into the promised land by Joshua, and all down their flank are Moab and uh, the other Amorites. They've just, this king of this Moab, he's a clever man. And they've been watching Israel, they've been studying Israel, they know what Israel's getting up to. And they've seen God constantly with them. They've seen God come against the Amalekites. Great big army by King Og. And Og was wiped out. Then another army with a man called Sihon comes against Israel with another huge army. They're wiped out. Now, the way the Moabites think is not, well, let's get military power here. They think in, in terms of their gods. Powerful or God? not powerful God. And Balak, the king, looks at this and says, we can't defeat Israel militarily. Their God is too powerful. We've got to try and deal with their God by spiritual power. And what we need is our gods to be made more powerful than Israel's God. That's how he thought. So he needed a go-between. And here we have Balaam. He's the go-between. Aren't we lucky? You know, a couple of weeks ago, I was listening to Liz, and she said, if God gives you a warning once, it's important. If you give it twice, then you really need to pay attention. Do you know how many times God warns about Balaam? Time after time after time after time through the Old Testament, he does nothing but warn about Balaam. Don't go the way of Balaam. Be careful of Balaam. Don't listen to Balaam. And I thought, well, what about the New Testament? And it's still in the New Testament. 2 Peter, chapter 2. I think it's verse 14. I haven't got them up on the overheads. Warning about Balaam in the New Testament. Jude 11. Warning about Balaam. Revelation, chapter 2. There's a whole screen about Balaam again. All through the New Testament. What is it with this guy, Balaam? It's so important to God, and he has to warn you so often. So I thought, well, I've got to have a look at this and try and figure this guy out. Let's see where we go with that. When I was looking at Balaam, these kings have convinced Balaam to help them. And Balaam really has two problems. Pride and covetousness. And they're common problems with all of us in our society. Because if you're, you live in a heathen society, and the two things you'll find really coming against you all through your lives are pride and covetousness. And these, these, that's not the only things. There's all the other things from a heathen society, like a loose sexual, morale, morals, all of these things. Are temptations that can bring you down but Balaam's particular ones was the covetousness and the pride and he goes with the kings and they want him to build up the power of their God and so they sacrifice but he doesn't just sacrifice one altar, they get seven altars so that their God is going to be really strong and really overcome Israel's God and Balaam he wants the money, he's been offered all this gold all he has to do is curse Israel but God doesn't want to, he stops him he says you're not going to curse Israel you'll do what I want and I want you to bless so Balaam actually goes out there and blesses Israel and you'll find if you study Balaam's prophecies as some of the most accurate and far reaching prophecies in the Bible are in the And Balaam's prophecies right through to the end of days in fact the three wise men who came from Babylon to bring Jesus gold, incense and myrrh they came on the strength of a prophecy of Balaam how can this man be such a prophet of God and yet he's working for Moab it's because while he's doing that his heart is really with Moab it's not enough that you do it and say it. You've got to have the heart that's prepared to go with God as well, to do God's will, not man's will. And the big feature with Balaam and the big danger with Balaam is he looks good. He's prophesying God's word. He's like any pastor of any church, but his heart is not with God. He's not going to give you God's will and God's purpose for your life or for the church. Anyway, Numbers 22, you've got this story of a his donkey. And it's a really weird story because I keep using donkey, but also Scripture says ass. It's the same thing. Donkey, ass, it's talking about the same animal. But he gets on this donkey and the donkey can see the angel of the Lord with his sword out. And Balaam's heading for the angel and he's going to die. And the, the donkey can perceive it and stops him three times from going. And Balaam doesn't see his danger and he beats the donkey three times. The donkey speaks to him and says, well, Why have you beaten me these three times? I thought, how on earth do you figure that one out? So I decided to go back through the Old Testament, take a look at this business of the ass. And the Old Testament's obscure, but the details in the Old Testament, that's why it's valuable. If you get the Old Testament details, then you look to the New Testament for the light. So I started back in the... The Old Testament with exodus thirteen thirteen in Exodus thirteen thirteen I was really surprised to find that every first thing of an ass you shall redeem with a lamb. I always thought Jesus redeemed us with the lamb, not some donkey, but according to thirteen thirteen it's redeemed by the lamb. Then I looked at judges fifteen verse fifteen and sixteen. That's the story of uh, Samson with his jawbone. And he slews a thousand men with it. And there's heaps and heaps with the jawbone. I've slain a thousand men. That is a ridiculous number of uh, deaths from one man with a jawbone. All of these scriptures involving an ass, they're sort of really weird. And it's hard to work out what on earth do they mean it's not till you come to the New Testament that the light can come. And this one's on Saul. He fell to the earth when the Lord stopped him. And what Saul was doing, he held, uh, a, I don't know what you call it. He had authority from the chief priest to crush the descent of these people of the way, they called them, the Christians of his day. And he, he, he organized the killing of Stephen, he was jailing Christians, he was beating them up. Everywhere he went, he was cleaning up, up in Jerusalem, and then he got letters to take him outside, and he was heading off everywhere he could find a Christian, he was dealing with them. And this man had a real zeal for God. He was a really knowledgeable Pharisee, he knew God's law, and he kept it perfectly himself. He even said, I've always kept God's law. He, he thought he was perfect. And Jesus stands there in his way and reveals himself to Saul. And he falls off the horse, off the donkey. And here's what he said. Why do you persecute me? That's when I realized what was going on with the talking donkey. What was the donkey saying to Balaam? Why do you beat me these three times? Exactly the same question that Jesus is asking Paul. That's when I realized Jesus is saying, you're beating me, you're persecuting me. And he's Saul saying, well, I'm not persecuting you. He said, yes, you are, you're persecuting me. When Jesus said, you're persecuting me, it meant that every Christian, when you're attacked for Jesus' sake, as far as Jesus is concerned, that attack is against Jesus. If you're in prison or you're killed, that's what they're doing to Jesus. Because Jesus so identifies with you, the body of Christ, that Anything that happens to us, it happens to him. So what's, what's the situation back there with Balaam? It's the church in Balaam's day. And he's on, on the church, beating the church. And it tells us man's religion will always attack Christianity. Because man's always going to dishonor God, we've always got to honor God. And there's this constant conflict. Because man's not going to do God's will, we have to do God's will. When we don't do God's will, we are dishonoring God. When man doesn't do it, they dishonor God. It's all a question of doing God's will and then obeying God. God's talking to Israel, and in Isaiah 48, verse 4, he says to them, I knew you were obstinate. Your neck is an iron sinew, your forehead is brass. God's equating Israel to this donkey, this ass. And it's the animal has that characteristic of being very stubborn. I watched a man actually beating a, a donkey once. And that donkey didn't move. Even though it was, he was smashing it with a wooden rod, donkey wouldn't move. It's really stubborn. Even if you injure it, if it sets its mind not to move, it won't move. And that's like people. They're stiff-necked, they're stubborn, they won't listen, they won't obey God. And what's happening there, forehead of brass. When the forehead is brass, what it's saying to us is, this frontal lobe of your brain is where you make the decision, the choice. I'll honor God or I'll dishonor God. I'll obey him or I won't obey him. I'll listen to his will and follow his will or I won't listen to him and and I won't follow his will. When that happens, your forehead can gradually, if you keep saying no to God, it can become like brass. God can't get through to you at all. And you, that's what Israel's done. And that's why they've gotten in so much trouble as a people. Their forehead has gone to brass. John 12. Here you've got a story of Jesus now on the donkey. And this is the fulfillment of all Israel's hopes. They've worked out correctly when Messiah would come. And they were correct within about two weeks. Now we've got Messiah coming to Israel just as thousands of years of prophecy being fulfilled before their eyes. It's a fantastic day for them. And he's riding this donkey. But this donkey is one that's under his control. It's doing his will. It's a redeemed donkey. And when Jesus enters, he's entering with his church because the church is represented by the donkey. And the people take branches of palm trees and they greet him with loud hosannas. Blessed is the King of Israel who comes in the name of the Lord. That sounds wonderful, doesn't it? Except they're dishonoring Jesus when they do that. They're dishonoring him as he comes into the city and they dishonor him when they get there and they don't even realize it because they're not doing it in truth and they're not doing it according to God's will. Let's see why not. In John, yeah, in Matthew 23 and verse 39, Jesus says to Israel, you shall not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But didn't they just say that when they were waving the palm branches? They were just saying, blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus totally ignored that and said, you're not going to see me again. Why? They were dishonoring him because it wasn't in truth. They were waving palm branches, which is what you do when you've got the Feast of Booths, which is tabernacles. And they were worshipping as a whole nation, they are worshipping tabernacles for their Messiah when they should have been worshipping Passover. And Jesus wasn't there for tabernacles. He came for Passover. He came to lay his life down as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And it was Passover that God got through to Nicodemus with. Because at Passover, when Nicodemus saw Jesus on that cross, he remembered that seed that Jesus had planted. When you see the Son of Man on the cross, just as the snake was lifted up by Moses in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man go. And when Nicodemus saw that, he realized Jesus was his Messiah, and for the first time in his life, he was able to honor God because he went and he requested the permission to bring Jesus down from the cross. And this is the head theologians from the Sanhedrin publicly lifting Jesus off the cross and helping to bury him. We get to Revelation two and verse sixteen. Jesus is talking to the church and he's telling them to repent, otherwise I'll come to you and fight against them with a sword of my mouth. The sword of his mouth we see that constantly in the Old Testament comes up. You saw it with Joshua when the, the angel appears with the sword and he says, I'm who are you? And I, he says, I'm the captain of the host. Host is just an old Elizabethan term for I'm the captain of the army. You see it again with Balaam. He's standing there with the sword drawn to kill Balaam. They're all Old Testament appearances of Jesus. And Jesus now is appearing to the church with that sword. Because the church, unfortunately, has been going the way of Balaam. See, Balaam's much more entertaining than God's church, much less challenging. Because he's not challenging your will. We'll entertain you, we'll give you great music, we'll have fun times and great entertaining preaching. We're not going to challenge you with God's word in Balaam's church. It's going to be man's will prevailing, not God's will prevailing. And that's the big danger with Balaam. It's it's the world infiltrating into God's church. And it, once you get that mixture coming in, it destroys God's church. In verse 14 of uh, Revelation 2, I didn't put it up on the on the overhead, but Jesus is saying to them, the problem with that church is you hold the doctrine of Balaam. That was God's final warning to the church in Revelation. They're following Balaam, and I don't think for a moment they realized it. But you've got to realize and be careful as with your Christian walk, because if you get too much influence from the world in your walk with Christ, you'll end up with Balaam instead of with Christ. The key issue is his will. Thy will be done, not my will be done. It's got to be in truth of God, and the truth is not acceptable to God if you muddle it up with some other truths and get it wrong, like the Jews have done for centuries. To this day, they haven't got it right, and they dishonor God to this day. But God's going to reach out to them in mercy as well towards the end. There's always God's mercy but just for the, for the Christian church, we need to take heed of the warnings about Balaam. Matthew 12 and verse 30, Jesus said this, You're either with me or you're against me. If you don't gather with me, you're scattering. You see, there's no ecumenical miracles here. It's Jesus or nothing. Nothing. I, was, I had a little look on the internet at the ecumenical miracle that they're talking about, which is the formation of One World Church. And the Pope has actually got a little line in there, which I noted, stating that Muslim Allah is just the same as our God. And therefore, we should all get together and worship God without enmity and accept each other because we're all worshipping the same God. This is the thing again, all over again, of Moab infiltrating into Israel. And Moab now is infiltrating into the church. And you're going to see this more and more, the young people in the church, as we get more and more pressure to join in with everybody else. And it sounds reasonable. Why be exclusive? But just remember that scripture, Matthew twelve 30. you're either with Jesus or you're against him. There's no way in the world we can team up with Allah and be worshipping the same God. That's Balaam's plot, to destroy the church and undermine it and get God to turn his back on the church. And that's why you've got so many warnings all through Scripture. And the safe way for us all to go is to bear in mind those issues God's will, God's truth and keep following what the Holy Spirit does and guides us with. Okay, i will just, uh, just like to just pray for everyone now. Father, I just pray that everyone here will understand and grasp the seriousness of dishonoring you by going their own way and doing their own will. I pray that everyone here will look to you for your will for their life, and that they will walk in that will, that they'll look to you in all things and they'll honor you in all things and not to this world. We pray for your hedge of protection against them from any of the wiles and deceptions of the enemy. I pray, Father, that this church will be a church wholly committed to your truth and to your will. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.